ಸ್ಥಾಪನರೀರಶಮ್ಯಹಂ ಓಂ ಸ್ಥಾಪಕಾಯ ಚರ್ಮಸ್ವರ್ಮಸ್ವರೂಪಿಣೆ ಅವತಾರವರಿಷ್ಠಾಯಕೃಷ್ಣಾ ತೇ ನಮಃ ಓಂ ಶಾಂತಿ 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 ಓಂ ಮೇ ದಿಸ್ ಬಿ ಅನ್ ಆಫ್ರಿಂಗ್ ಟು ಮಾ ಸಾರದ ದೇವಿ ಟು ಸ್ವಾಮಿ ವಿವೇಕಾನಂದ ಆ್ಯಂಡ್ ಟು ಶ್ರೀರಾಮಕೃಷ್ಣ ಓಂ Hara Hara Mahadeva. Tonight's discussion is, I think, beyond fascinating. We're going to discuss Sarada Devi as a spiritual teacher, Sarada Devi as a guru, Sarada Devi in the sense of her spiritual contribution to the world at large and all the spiritual lessons that we can get from the life that was lived, the life that we've come to know as Sarada Devi. So you'll recall last week, we attempted this topic, who is Sarada Devi? And you'll recall there, early on the first thing we had to do is admit our ignorance who knows the only answer to the question who is sarada devi is who knows who can know no who can know and as as i said last week and i, I really strongly believe this if even shankara is saying in his kalika ashtakam swarupam tvadiyam navindanti devaha even the gods do not understand your true nature what then could we possibly hope to say regarding this very mysterious guya kali who are now choosing to call sarada devi and so already i just want to at the start of the lecture repeat our reservations from last week regarding this topic if we're going to talk about sri sarada devi as a spiritual teacher we must first admit that we're going to be making a horrible mistake the audacity of this even because necessarily we're only going to understand her in in this limited way and and obviously she goes so far beyond what i've ever been able to grasp of her and, and what little i i've received from those masters who i've had the fortune to be in the in the presence of that i'd like to share today you know so that that alone i'd like to pass on absolutely no no i'm going to go further rishab is saying ishi and avatara so much more avatars are as of nothing compared to her and hopefully we can prove that point in just a little bit there would be no avatars if not for holy mother sanada devi there would be no jesuses or buddhas or krishnas or ramas there would be no ramakrishna whatsoever no ramakrishna would be possible whatsoever without this fire and its power to burn without this sarada devi who is none other than that one dynamic shakti by whose power all of this has come into being whatever exists and wherever it may be you are the power of all of that o devi so that's what we're going to discuss today sarada devi in her incarnation as a bengali quote unquote village woman the spiritual consort of shri ramakrishna who for all intents and purposes appeared to the world at large as a common very considerate very cultured bengali housewife but to a select few she was a guru um and to the whole world she was a jagat guru so this is important that unlike shri ramakrishna who had a very small band of disciples a very small inner circle it was given to sarada devi to initiate the whole world as it were and almost everyone uh benefits in the ramakrishna mission from that shakti which is sarada devi in so far as without her there wouldn't be a mission whatsoever there wouldn't be belramat a center for the monks to live and have their practice there wouldn't be um as many monks as there are because where ramakrishna was very 
selective, Sada Devi was absolutely unabashedly inclusive. She would take anybody and everybody, even people that Brahmananda, Raja Maharaj, refused to initiate. You know, even people that were deemed to be lowly or impure or unfit for spiritual life. These especially she took. And these especially she educated and trained and initiated. So a, a big part of the discussion in contemplating Masarada Devi as a guru is going to be about guruhood. It's going to be about transmission and discipleship. It's going to be about the lineage-based system that is the trademark and heart of the tantric tradition. The claim that spirituality must be got, not just taught. You can't actually learn it that way. You have, spirituality must be caught, not taught. It must be got. You know, Swamiji would say it's, it's the process of getting religion. Necessarily, part of our discussion will take us into that territory of diksha and, and guru yoga and initiation. Because we're going to discuss today Ma Sarada Devi's role as a Diksha Guru, as a Sadguru, as a cultivator of spiritual personalities. That's, that's the main gist of today's discussion. And it's following a discussion that we had last week, which mainly focused on a biographical sketch, as short and as hurried as it was, a kind of overarching biological sketch of the early years of Sri Sarada Devi. It almost felt like at the end of the lecture, and I was very ambitious, I was hoping to talk about the whole life as, as, as a sketch, as a brief overview of like, you know, when she got married to Ramakrishna, what did she do prior to that marriage, when she moved to Dakshineshwar, how she would go back between Jairambati and Dakshineshwar. I wanted to sketch these important uh, biographical events, and, and, but I, I didn't get very far. I think we stopped at 1872, I think, Dakshineshwar. I think that's where we left off in the journey. So now Sarada Devi is in Dakshineshwar. And I was thinking at the end of that lecture, as ambitious as it was, we only covered so little of perhaps what is unchartable terrain. I, I ended up thinking at the end of the lecture that it was a bit of like a superhero backstory, you know? <laughs> because some, some people had commented after the lecture that they hadn't actually known that much about Sarada Devi. They had revered her and seen her as an avatar par excellence co-joined with Sharamakrishna, but they hadn't actually known a lot about her life and what she did as a woman and as a person. So I think last week's lecture was more about Sarada Devi, the woman the person, which is perhaps the maximum spiritual value we can get from the advent of Sarada Devi. It's not what she taught as much as how she lived her life that is of interest to us, we who are spiritual seekers. Because the reason an avatar comes is not actually necessarily to teach, but it's to set a powerful example, which we are to follow. That's why I particularly like the book, The Imitation of Christ by Thomas R. Kempis. And it was one of the two books that Swami Vivekananda allegedly carried with him in his wandering days as a monk. Can anybody guess what the other one was? So one of them I've already given away was Thomas Arkempis, Imitation of Christ. The other one was, can everybody, you know, Gita, exactly. It was the Gita. You're good. You're all like you know, passing with flying colors. We've come to enough of these lectures now that we could do a quiz and you'd, you'd kill it. So yes, it's Gita. Isn't this interesting? He could carry two books with him, possibly because, you know, you don't want to have a big satchel of books as you wander about India barefoot. He has his danda, his staff, his kamandalu, his water pot. Um, and apparently shoes that I think he got from Maharashtra or something like that, or Marathi shoes or something, I forget. There's actually a, a, a picture of him with these shoes that he, he got from the plains of India. Anyway, that aside, he certainly wasn't going to be carrying around a lot of books with him. But of the books that he chose to bring, yeah, probably Harry Potter 5 was probably too heavy for that journey. <laughs> yeah, you're right, Tripki Devi. It probably wasn't the complete trilogy of Lord of the Rings or anything like that. You know, He had to choose the best spiritual literature. Obviously, the Gita is a clear choice. And Gita is the essence of the Upanishads distilled. Gita is the practical manual of the highest philosophy of India, the Upanishads. No, no doubt he'd choose the Gita. Almost everyone 
looks at the Gita as the ultimate source of spiritual inspiration. Very few things in spiritual life that's not discussed by the Gita. So no doubt, he, he has the Gita. But interestingly, the other book he chose was Thomas R. Kempis's Imitation of Christ. So that title is very important to me, Imitation of Christ, because what we are to do now as followers of Christ, as those who claim to be in the lineage of the Avatara, is we ought to live like them. You know, we ought to aspire to their ideals and do our best. Obviously, we'll fall short. They are a class in and of themselves. But we're, we, you know, we have a model, we have a, a mold, and now we just have to cast ourselves in the shape of that mold. That's where the, the chapter, um, the title, Imitation of Christ, is so provocative and so thrilling to me. And that, insofar as we're talking about Ramakrishna, is exactly what we're here to do. We're, quote-unquote, imitating Ramakrishna. Not that anybody will succeed. I don't doubt that someone will succeed. Why not? Right? Take that Vivekananda Bhava and say, why not? Some, maybe. And he said there will be many, many more Vivekanandas after me. Why not aspire to live that life? And so insofar as that is true, it's the life that matters. You know, once after a very illuminating talk by a great nun, my teacher took me outside the temple and we were talking about that talk. And he looked at me very intently. I think he was holding my arm. I can't remember. He looked at me and he said, more important than what she said, learn from the life. I'm paraphrasing a bit. He said something like that. Learn from her life. Learn from the life or something like that. You know, and, and a comment like that was made also by someone like Shivananda, a personality like Mahapurush Maharaj. He would say to people, you know, who were very insistent on studying the Upanishads, he would say, never mind. It's enough that you study our lives. And by our lives, he meant Sarada Devi, Ramakrishna, um, Vivekananda, Brahmananda, Turyananda, Premananda, etc. It might be enough to have studied the life of Paul or Peter or something like that, maybe. So last week, I wanted to focus on that. The life, the woman, you know, you know the, the man, the mystery. The, so I want to focus on Sarada Devi, the life, the woman, the individual that she was. And because so much of what her life was was so nondescript, you know, I, I don't know if that's the word, but it was so clandestine almost. Her spirituality was not put on show or on display, quite the opposite, actually. It was veiled. It was hidden. Very few really understood that she was a great spiritual personality. Most people were fascinated with Ramakrishna because he was so extroversively spiritual, you know, dancing and singing and going into spiritual moods and plunged deep into meditation, deep into samadhi, always speaking and inspiring people with words of wisdom that, you know, had this uncanny knack for summarizing the most obtuse and most difficult philosophies like obviously Ramakrishna is, is a spiritual gajillionaire you know but it, as my guru was saying the other day in terms of spiritual wealth it seemed like Sarada Devi compared to that was a pauper like she had not a single spiritual penny it seemed that way because she was so secretive and so veiled and so private and so in the beginning at least so shy um, she didn't really allow very much to be known of her and of her spiritual depth she is this great unsounded spiritual depth if you will so anyway you know, it's, it's, it's a known fact that people who have lots of money, like crazy amount of money, they don't usually look like they have money. It's kind of a phenomenon, I think, that's been observed. And I don't know how true this is, but people who just come into money, there's this kind of trope maybe of new money being very, very interested in showing you that. So if they've never had money before and they now just suddenly come into some wealth, they're going to buy flashy cars and they're going to wear flashy clothes and they're going to go to flashy restaurants and they're going to try to like show you that they're now people of means because that's not what they were and maybe that's not what they still feel like they are there's this kind of maybe insecurity and, and so there's a desire to maybe overcompensate similarly there's kind of similarity between fools and really wise people the wise woman is quite silent it's fools like us who jabber and jabber and jabber you know like a fool like 
either being a fool or being a wise woman is probably better than the state that we're in. This in-between state where we just talk our asses. Like, obviously, if you knew something, if you really knew something, you might have nothing to say. You might be stunned into silence by the awe of what you have discovered. And so really wise people are usually very, very silent. And interestingly, that resembles the fool. The fool is silent because he has nothing to say. The wise woman is silent is because she knows that what she has to say cannot be said. Something like that. You know, it's a powerful understanding that like, usually when a person has nothing, they act as if they have something in some sense. You know, if I have no, if I have no money, it's very important to me that I advertise that I have money. But interestingly, yeah, right? The Tama Sattva Horseshoe Theory, <laughs> right? But this is, yeah, imagine like going beyond Sattva, like real spirituality, beyond Raja uh, Tamas. And, that's what Swamiji would say. Tamas and Sattva look very similar on the surface. But they couldn't, in reality, couldn't be further apart. And Swamiji gives the example of um, the light, which when it's vibrating at a very fine frequency is invisible, compared to a light when it's vibrating at a very low frequency, that too is invisible. Just because they're both invisible doesn't mean they're at the same frequency. You see? They couldn't be, they're worlds apart, yet their appearance is similar. So Tamas and Sattva, they have this uncanny ability of looking alike like that. Devil speaks scripture too. There's that joke, you know. Maybe not so much a joke as a grave statement, but to us, you know, Kali Bhaktas, it's a bit of a joke. <laughs> Mahavidya Mahamaya, Mahamedha Mahaspati, Mahamoha Chabhavati, Mahadevi Mahasani. So anyway, this idea, if Mahasarada Devi is a spiritual gajillionaire, that makes sense, that tracks, because she was never interested in showing it off. She had no desire to flash her spiritual wealth in front of anybody. Ramakrishna and Vivekananda, maybe they had to do it. But she is the power of all that. Ramakrishna would be nothing without Mahasarada Devi. He is the power, she is the power of Ramakrishna, right? As we understand from the fourth hymn of the Chandi. The gods, their power is that Aindri, that Vaishnavi, that, you know, that um, Maheshwari, that power is what we're calling Shakti. Now, going further, Ramakrishna... I mean, Besides Ramakrishna, Vivekananda, he, by his own admission, would say that it was the mother alone who spoke to Rumi. And of course, he met Kali and Sarada Devi in that same breath. Okay, all of this to say, what we're going to talk about today um, is a mysterious subject, to say the least, because she was so spiritually wealthy, so established, so, so absolutely established in that highest of highest planes that there's barely an outward murmur. There's barely any outside indication of the such. Some people say she's greater than Ramakrishna because what Ramakrishna could not control, she had totally down pat, you know? She was able to, you know, it's like, let's say two people do uh, the same dose, a very high dose of, of psilocybin mushrooms or something like that. Just for fun, pardon this glib metaphor. It's obviously very different, but there's something here, I think, similar in principle. Now, two people do a bunch of psilocybin mushrooms. One of them is beside themselves with the substance and is now rolling on the floor, crying, screaming, jumping, um, and is unable to go to the store and buy orange juice which for whatever reason is very much needed in that moment. The other person who takes the same dose is able to walk down the street, be totally normal and chill with everyone they meet, go into the store, get the orange juice, the exact brand that they wanted, go to the counter, pay for it with the exact amount, be cordial with the, the shopkeeper, go back home, pour two perfect glasses with no spillage and serve it. That was Sanada Devi. In a sense, right? In a sense. So it's not that she's not totally blissed out by her own admission as we, we explored last week. It's a, it was like a picture of bliss was placed in her heart, she said, in the presence of Sri Ramakrishna. But unlike Sri Ramakrishna, who couldn't contain that bliss, he, could, he would fly off into an ecstasy, he would start singing, he would start jumping, he would start dancing, he would start talking. Like unlike Sri Ramakrishna, Sharada Devi um, just went on with the household duties. She cooked, she cleaned, she served 
cooking for up to 40 or 50 people at a time during Ramakrishna Jayanti. She would take care to cook the dishes that the people in that congregation liked. She would make sure that kichari for Rakal or thick gram soup for Swami Vivekananda, like that, you see. So what we're studying tonight is Sarada Devi as a guru. So necessarily then Sarada Devi as a spiritual aspirant will be an important discussion also, but it should just be admitted here at the beginning of the lecture. Swarupam Tvadiyam Navindanti Deva. Even the gods can understand the depth of her spirituality. But I at least wanted to make this point that because she was so deep, she was so nondescript. See, because she was so, so secure, so established, there was barely any outward indication. And this is a point I think lost on many of us because um, we, a lot of us equate outward signs of spirituality with the real thing. And so much so that there's this whole market around like a kind of pretense. Not that that's bad. We're all trying and no one should be condemned. Everyone is wending their way to the same goal. It's wonderful and it's valid. But often we think that a little agitated shouting and singing and jumping around is what spirituality is. When in truth, it's far deeper than that. Not that there's any problem. You know, I'm the first one to jump and shout and scream and wave my hands. I, I have no filter with that kind of thing. I love a good kirtan. I love, you know, a, a good ripping and tearing. Like I love a little, you know, but, but that's a failing actually in me because like I said, um, some time ago, I once attended an arati at, at, at a Kali temple and my teacher was there also. And I was in the middle of my agitated, you know, I was excited, worshiping Makali. I was doing my little dance. And then I looked and it, it was spontaneous. I was stunned by what I saw in my teacher. My teacher was standing absolutely still. His palms were together. All around him, people were dancing and kind of whirling and kind of in a bhav. He wasn't even, he, his lips were barely moving, saying the Jai Maas. He was so absorbed. His palms were together like this kind of in front of his face. And his eyes were locked on the eyes of the Divine Mother. And I'd never seen such stillness. And in that same breath, I'd never seen such power, such dy dynamism, you know? It was, it was thrilling to see. And I too had to stand still. And, and that image has never left my mind of my teacher standing perfectly still. Swamiji used to give, you know, Shravakrishna, he used to go to Ramakrishna and give a few complaints. Like he said, see, these boys are rolling on the floor in ecstasy, but nothing's happening to me. Swamiji was upset that he wasn't getting these ecstasies at first. And Ramakrishna said something very telling and very powerful to him. Ramakrishna said to him, when an elephant goes into shallow water, there is much splashing. There is much furor. But when that same elephant goes into the Ganga, broad and deep as it is, there is barely a murmur, barely a ripple, absolutely silent. And that's the way it is with spirituality. When powerful emotions enter us, when that spiritual energy surges into the veins, most of us, our nerves can't handle it. You know, we, we become frazzled or we need to kind of do something with that excess energy, which our nerves are not tuned. And by nerves, I mean nadis, not just physical, electrical um, hardware. I, I also mean that spiritual hardware, those nadis. They're not actually equipped to handle that much energy. And so we have these kinds of outward signs, agitations. You know, we jump, we dance, we shout, we cry. And that's wonderful. That's fine. That's a way to process and move through some of these energetic experiences in spiritual life. But there comes a time actually when the sadhana has deepened us so much that we're able to handle more. And so more comes. But because we're able to handle more, also we integrate that, assimilate that, and experience that with much less perturbation, perturbation much less aberration. And that's like 
I think, personified above all by the Sarada Devi, who mysteriously outwardly showed no signs, although internally she was in a lofty state. So that's the first point I want to make, that it's hard to discuss Sarada Devi outwardly, you know, because very little was given. She's a veiled deity. I like to think that she's a Guya Kali, a secret Kali. And yet the most paradoxical thing is that she was easy of access to one and all. So maybe the most confounding thing about all of this is that by saying that she's a Guya Kali, it's, it's not like she's inaccessible and hard to reach and unavailable. It's not like she's a recluse. No, she was actually very social, especially towards the end of her life, where she was serving a lot of people. Lots of her family members were gathered around her. She was in Jairambati almost full time, tending to her nieces and nephews. Exactly. I think Wes says it perfectly. The, the really beautiful thing about her is that she's hiding in plain sight. So much so that people around her don't really even understand that she's an, not to say, what, what to say of Avatar, right? She was the Shakti of those Avatars. And it, she would let it slip from time to time. And it's those slips that I want to talk about in today's lecture. <laughs> so I just want to start by saying like outwardly, these things that we're going to discuss today are slips. They're secrets. They're the inner workings of the Sarada Devi who outwardly was just making chapatis, you know, feeding people. So we left off last week with a brief biological sketch, but bi biographical sketch, kind of like um, the early days of Sarada Devi or the backstory, the superhero backstory of the spiritual personality. So you'll recall we're now in Dakshineshwar. And the first thing we have to note is this suppressing of spiritual emotions, this deepening. So I want to tell you a scene about the Dakshineshwar temple regarding Ma Sarada's inner mood or her inner ecstasy. So Yogin Ma, one of the close disciples and close personal friends, I think, of Sarada Devi, who one monk once told me was like Vijaya and Jaya, See, Divine Mother, Durga, she has two attendants, Jaya and Vijaya. Vijaya and Jaya are the guards of the Divine Mother. They protect Divine Mother. They nourish her. You know, and you see in Chinamasta also, Jaya and Vijaya are there. So usually Mother has two handmaidens, you see. So um, one Swami, I was standing with him and looking at a picture of Ma. And there was Sarada, sorry, Sarada Devi was there. And there was Yogin Ma and Go, Golap Ma. Golapma was here, Yogin Ma was there, and this monk was looking and said, I put the pictures like that because they always reminded me of Jaya and Vijaya. I was so thrilled by that thought. It hadn't occurred to me until he had said it. I won't take his name, he's still in his body, but then I asked him, um, which one is which? And he said, you know, I haven't quite figured that out yet. And that was a sweet discussion. Wonderful monk. And he was saying, you know, so this Jaya or Vijaya, whichever one, this attendant of the Divine Mother, Yogin Ma, once actually went to Ramakrishna and interceded on Divine Mother's behalf and she asked Ramakrishna to give mother some experience. Because, you see, Yogin Ma, she didn't understand. She, she didn't see the mother, that mother was what she was. And she started, she's not having any experience. All these other disciples, Rakal is rolling on the floor in ecstasy, you know. Um, they're all having these experiences, visions of their Ishta, all of that. But Holy Mother, she's not just Ramakrishna's disciple. She's Ramakrishna's spiritual god's wife. You know, oh my God, camera is gone. His wife. So isn't it kind of striking? That this wife should, um, sorry, I'm just, I think my camera has given out, but it's okay, I'll come back. So it's, it's kind of striking that this wife does not have spiritual experiences. When her husband was one of the most important spiritual personages. Of so um, it is quite telling then that Yogin Ma, one of her closest associates, her confidant, her best friend in a sense, couldn't even understand what her inner state was like. That's how much she was veiled. So this is the story. Yogin Ma goes to Shravakrishna and asks for Samadhi on behalf of Divine Mother. Then, having asked this, I think Ramakrishna dismisses it or something like that. Then, I forget exactly what Ramakrishna says in this instance, but then she comes back 
And she suddenly finds, almost like a joke, like Holy Mother is playing a joke on her. She looks into the window and she finds a, a miraculous scene. Holy Mother, Sarada Devi, alone at the shrine, at her altar, I think after her evening's worship or something, like crying, laughing, becoming very still, crying again, laughing again, suddenly becoming very still, like going into samadhi like that by outward appearance. And, and it's, it was clear that Holy Mother was drinking deep from this pitcher of bliss that she said was permanently installed in her heart. But it was happening in private. And there's a Shivananda prayer that I really like. Shivananda Saraswati, that is. In Sadhana, the book Sadhana, I think. Or maybe the book Japa Yoga, I forget. One of his many writings. He says something like, may I cry tears, but only in private. Something like that. You know, I want to cry tears for God, but let it just be, be between me and you. You know, let no one else enter here. Let's have this intimacy, just me and you, God. And let me express these emotions to you, not as a spectacle, not to other people, not with this social kind of connotation of how I should behave. And No, no, it's between me and God. And between us, we'll have our tears, we'll have our laughter, we'll have our samadhi, we'll have our fun. You and me, God, like that. Let no one else join in here. Like that, that kind of bhav we saw with Holy Mother. In private, he was experiencing these emotions. So it's like, like a prank, right? Ramakrishna and Holy Mother, they always, oh my God, this computer. I wonder if we can get to this lecture. The computer's already like rolling around in ecstasy. It seems like the computer is falling over. <laughs> yes. Yeah, it could be a prank between the two of them, you know, like a prank between Yogi and mine. A lot of this was very like good humored. Um, like that. Yeah, so there, there's that scene. There's an important scene. But the, the you know, the telling of it is going to vary. But the, the thing I want to point to, the main thing is that she's in the room privately experiencing these bobs. So the first thing I want to say before we get to Holy Mother as a guru is it's important to note that like when we hold something in, there is a chance that it will get deeper. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the things we learned from Holy Mother, and this is a very strong culture in the Ramakrishna Vivekananda and the lineage, especially in Belomar, is that you shouldn't outwardly express your emotions too easily. Don't give them up so easily like that. Now, this is not in keeping with other bhakti traditions. Many bhakti traditions actually value ecstasy. But if you come to one of our Ramakrishna matas, you'll see that actually the vibe is not like that. Leading some to criticize the matas. But Ramakrishna was so ecstatic. Yeah, but that is, does that mean all of us must imitate in that way, superficially? You know, there's something deeper to Ramakrishna than jumping about and shouting. There's something deeper to all of this than this external display of emotion. That's kind of the Ramakrishna Vivekananda Belramat claim. So you'll find if you go to the Vedanta temple, especially in Hollywood, there's so much ecstasy, so much depth, depth, yet there's a kind of solemnity. It's like kind of quiet and still and, and unperturbable. You know, there's the frequency in that temple is so deep that it lulls you into an absorption that doesn't necessarily, I mean, there are of course times like I've jumped around in there and there's Ram Nam and Ram Nams get kind of ecstatic. Pujas can get kind of ecstatic. But I just mean on a regular day, if you go in there, the bhav is not jump around and make a scene. The bhav is actually feel the emotion, hold it, go deeper. So I'll give you just briefly kind of like a metaphor here. When energy comes in, it wants to go out. But if for some reason we can hold it and harness it, it's not really repression or suppression, though it's a bit like that. It's a bit like holding something in that wants to come out. Like if we can hold it in, there's a chance that it will have a higher expression. Not always. Sometimes it gets like stuck somewhere and then we get repressed and we get all sorts of weird psychological illnesses. So this teaching is actually to be taken with a grain of salt and certainly to be only practiced under the guidance of a guru. But it's kind of the justification behind things like brahmacharya also. Like that. So when you hold something in that wants necessarily like express, 
something, it deepens. It, it, it doesn't go away, actually. It intensifies. And so the, uh, the argument here we're saying is that, like, say spiritual energy comes in, right? It's going to first want to go out through the second chakra, through sexuality. And if it doesn't go out there, then it's going to want to go out through name and fame, through this desire to, like, power, basically. This desire to exert yourself or project yourself into the world and have power. Like, that's fine, too, actually. That's, that's wonderful. It's part of the journey. But then it goes higher and then it becomes devotion. But if you can deepen that devotion by holding it in, instead of letting it like orgasm into this like whirling and jumping and shouting, which is also wonderful. If you can hold it, it'll come out through the crown of the hand. You know, so the, the there's a Shema Raja pun on orgasm. And he talks about orgasming out through the crown of the head because the same sexual energy, that same energy is spiritual energy. There's no difference. There's only one energy. You're calling it sexual, but it's really just Shakti. That energy, which is there at the base of the spine, if you can harness it, and, and by the way, the only way to do this is innocently, courageously, um, and wholeheartedly. It's a dangerous path, you know, but you have to enter into your sexuality, like beautifully and courageously and innocently. And then what the tantrika in this tradition, the kaula, what they invite you to do is to take that same energy during an, you know, these are esoteric techniques. We don't need to go into it. But the idea is that the energy will come up the spine. That same energy, which otherwise would have been expressing itself sexually, it, it's powerful now. There's this huge momentum of energy goes up the spine. And if it comes out in the heart, wonderful. But it can also go deeper. And that same devotion, uh, if you hold it, it can go deeper. So this culture you find a little bit in our lineage where the, the impetus on us is to get these emotions deepen in our sadhana, but also practice a little bit of discretion. You know, kind of, Hum it's not humility so much as it is absorption. You know, it's not like a false sense of, oh, I have nothing, Baba, because even that is a show. You know, I once a monk of our order was straight up asked by an interviewer, have you realized God? He paused and he said, I won't answer that. You know, and the, the way he answered that was like, of course he has, right? But he's not going to say, I've realized God, or he's not going to make a big show of it. And if you meet this man, you'll notice there's something not very ordinary about him. But if he went to the mall or something in jeans and shorts, like I think most people would just see him. So th these great personalities are so ordinary. I think that's the first thing I want to say is Holy Mother is a guru. One thing she taught us, even before she formally took up her role as a guru, just from her time in Dakshineshwar, she taught us that if you can hold something in, it goes deeper. And that doesn't mean it's not there. It's perhaps so deep that it, because she's holding it in, you know, so that's one thing. I think that's, we can learn by her example. Secondly, um, another thing we can learn from Holy Mother in this time in Dakshineshwar was that she, she was the karma yogi par excellence. Swamiji would later articulate this as the, the centerpiece of his whole metaphysic, right? This idea that God is wholly imminent in and through all things. And to serve someone chapati is to worship the living God. So better than puja. Certainly, you know, puja is necessary. It's part of the process. It's kindergarten, Swamiji said. You have to go to kindergarten, actually. He called puja books, rituals, dogmas. He called them all secondary, the kindergarten of religion. So you have to go to kindergarten. You know, A, apple, B, boy, C, cat, D, dog. You need that. But Swamiji's claim is that if you really attain the fruit of these practices, you won't need it anymore. You can just read words without having to say C, cat, D, dog like that. You'll be able to just go into the world and see God and everybody and serve chapati and you will feel as spiritually exalted about that as you do with your pujas. Holy Mother Sarada Devi, long before this karma yoga metaphysic was articulated in the Swamiji sense, long before any of that, was living it fully because she seemed to, she, 
It was like she didn't sleep at night. She slept three hours, maybe three, four hours. And she spent the whole day just cooking and just cleaning and just seeing to everybody's needs. How on earth could a human being have done that? Yes, she's God, but she's also a person. And that's kind of why last week I wanted to stress her life as a woman because we have this tendency of putting all these people on pedestals and seeing them only as God and thereby doing ourselves a great disservice because they are people and you're a person and they showed you what it's, what's possible. You know, like that's the idea. They're God as man to show us that man is God. That's kind of the beauty of the avatar, if you will. So she's a person, she's a human being. So I invite us to contemplate for a few moments what it would take for a human being to be as industrious as Sarada Devi. Because most of us, right, we work a little bit, we complain already. If I work like one or two hours extra than what I, I, I thought I was going to work, like ah, humming and hawing. And, you know, we, we, most of us are quite allergic to work. Because we see it as work. That's the thing. The reason karma yoga doesn't work is because it's still just karma that we're pretending is yoga. You know, and that's good. We have to do that for, for many of us. That's, that's a good beginning. But real karma yoga doesn't feel like karma at all. It's just yoga. In fact, karma yoga is a redundant statement. Real karma yoga um, is a labor of love. It doesn't feel like you're working any more than it feels like you're working when you're doing puja. I know, I know. Sometimes puja can be a drag. Right. Those of you who have a murti installed, you have to feed her every day, do your nitya puja. I know, I know. Sometimes it feels like work. But I mean like a good puja. It's a labor of love. You know, you feel you're excited to do it. Think about your passions, the things that you love to do, whether it's playing music or whether it's writing poetry or walking in the park. Like those things that you love to do, they don't feel like work. It's not, it's not a labor. It's not even a labor of love. There's no labor involved here. This would be a good Labor Day lecture, I guess laborless labor it's it's wonderful it's beautiful you enjoy it you'll do it for free you'll do it all day and you won't mind sacrificing one or two hours of sleep for it you see the key ingredient here is love and the reason i think as a person holy mother was able to be so industrious is because i think she really loved what she did I, that's the only way conceivable for me to understand like the only conceivable way that she could have really worked as hard as she did and swamiji also right? He was a saint who rarely rested. Well, what would impel a person to, to work so hard, to be so industrious, to put out so much energy? It's passion, I think. It's love. It's, it's, actual, um, it's an actual sense of doing meaningful work. Hmm? That's another thing I, I really enjoy about the, just the human life of Holy Mother Sarada Devi is that she really showed us what it is to work. Because for her, oh my God, how could it have been work? She did it all day long. So that's the second thing. Now, the third thing that I wanted to point out from her time in Dakshineshwar, is that once she was on her way to the Ganga, early in the morning, 3.30, 4am like that, to go and take a bath, there are two teachings here. One is the importance of early mornings in spiritual life. It's not always true. Some of us like to stay up late into the night and meditate. That's wonderful too. You know, meditation is meditation. But it seems like most spiritual cultures all around the world, most of them seem to corroborate one thing, right? Oh my God, noodles or like soup. It seems so good, right? <laughs> It's like, oh, I can't wait. For the... Okay, I received. Thank you. Oh, <laughs> through through your eating, we are all eating. Please eat, eat, eat. I'm so happy. Oh, yes. But look, this idea, um, spiritual communities all over the world, most of them, I think, uh, can corroborate this one fact that mornings are powerful, actually. You know, and to do your practices early in the morning, to start your day with spirituality, something about that that I think goes a long way. And many traditions will corroborate this fact so anyway that's one teaching sarada devi's up early and she's going to the ganga to take a bath she starts her day with a bath in the ganga she does her ablutions then she'll do her meditation or puja or things like that but one day she stepped on a crocodile you know and the crocodile i might have told you the story last week 
uh, got startled and scurried away. They're, they're more scared of us than we are of them, actually, I think. So they scurried away um, and went back into the Ganga. And by the way, in early morning, it's dark. Ganga has crocodiles. Yeah, so she was stepping on the crocodile. And from this day on, you know, she made it a point to always carry a lantern with her when she went to the Ganga. And this just, it blew my mind. I think I mentioned it last week, but like the goddess who is seated atop the crocodile, Ma Ganga, who is the reason why crocodiles exist at all, who is the power over all serpents and reptiles and what have you, even she carries a lantern so that she won't accidentally step and startle a crocodile and get bitten. And I think this is so profound. And I think last week I was also saying how Ramakrishna was a real like Marie Kondo expert in a sense because everything had a home with him, you know? Like he knew where the peeling knife should be and he insisted on everyone that it should be placed in its proper place. Everything has a home. And he was very particular that people shouldn't leave behind umbrellas or towels or things like that. And he would always advise Holy Mother to leave a place last so that she could ensure everyone in that vicinity brought with them what they had um, on them and no one left anything behind. So that kind of thing, that even God herself, as I claimed last week, is practical <laughs> in her worldly dealings. If even the mother of the universe carries a lantern on her way to the Ganga for her morning bath, then we have no excuse. And often we like to make excuses. We as spiritual ex aspirants, we like to use our spirituality as a way to justify our slovenliness <laughs> or our lack of practical um, efficiency in the world. There's, you know, Shravan said, because you're a bhakta, must you be a fool? There's no reason why we shouldn't be able to function in the world. Shravan would say to someone, um, how do you, how do you, you know, why do you think you'll become unconscious by meditating on God? God is consciousness itself. By meditating on consciousness, one does not become unconscious. You know, it's an interesting thing. By meditating on the source of the mind, one doesn't really become unmindful. I mean, there are certain states, no doubt, where a person forgets their body, they don't shower, they don't eat, they can't really like relate to other people. No doubt, Ananda Mahima for a while was in a state like that. And Sri Ramakrishna for a while, you know, somebody had to come and beat him with a stick so that they can push a few morsels of food into his mouth. Otherwise, he would probably have expired. So I'm not saying that there aren't certain spiritual states where this teaching doesn't hold true. But I don't know, it's maybe like the acid thing. Like maybe there's a certain point when you really stabilize in your spirituality where you're maybe able to go to the store and buy some orange juice and come home and pour a perfect glass and serve someone orange juice, you know, like that. And so I think this is beautiful that the goddess herself brings a lantern. lantern. It's like the chop wood carry water feeling almost. Okay. And the last thing I'll say here before we move on to her role as a guru, the way she, you know, served others as a guru is once she fell ill or something like that. And so she decided to sleep in. The moment she did that, she found the next day she also slept in. And the next day she also slept in. And the next day she also slept in. That's a really interesting thing. When she noticed that, she didn't get guilty or angry or upset. She just noticed it. And she said, ah, I see. Um, I'm going to resolve now, no matter what, to get up at the same time every day, no matter what. And that's interesting that even God herself committed to a routine, a schedule, a discipline. And that's really important. Okay, so as a mother figure, when she was in Dakshineshwar, she was always, of course, a refuge and resort to all who came to the temple. There was a woman and she was not seen in very high regard because she was in the eyes of society at that time, a fallen woman. You know, there's not a lot of like awareness around sex work and a lot of people who had participated in that industry or are currently participating in the industry. People tend to look down upon them. So this quote unquote fallen woman by the standards of society at that time came to the temple and she quickly scooped her up 
and taught her and initiated her and made her feel like she was the purest of the pure, whereas the rest of society seemed to make her feel otherwise. So she had that effect of seeing everyone as pure and, and taking everyone in no matter what. She would feed Baburam, later Swami Premananda, chapatis at night. And Baburam would have like five or six chapatis, which irritated Ramakrishna because Ramakrishna felt like his beloved disciple Baburam, if he had such a big meal at night, he wouldn't be able to get up early in the morning and meditate. Ramakrishna always suggested to have a light meal at night, you know, so that you'd be able to have better sleep and be able to wake up earlier. If you have a big meal late at night, sometimes, you know, in the morning you feel kind of sluggish and your sleep is interrupted because you're digesting and not really sleeping. But all of that aside, Ramakrishna was upset that Baburam had eaten these chapatis. So he went to the Holy Mother and took her to task for it. You know, he said, um, don't feed these boys chapatis. And Holy Mother said, you need not worry about their welfare. I will look to that. I will see to that. This is my job, she said. My job is to feed the boys. And so it turned out that they could eat whatever they want because Holy Mother would feed them at night. However many chapatis they want, they got. You see, now this is actually very prophetic. Because years and years and years later, all these same boys who at that time were just school-going boys who were visiting Sri Ramakrishna and becoming inspired by his moods, all those boys would later become the monks of the order. But for a long time, they would wander about India and starve. They were like the OG starving artist. For God, they would wander about and beg their food and their, their situation wasn't so good. They're very poor, poorer than the poorest, you know. At that time, there was not even a, an organization or anything like that. They were just lone star, ragtag, ragamuffin, freewheeling, Bob Dylan kind of figures, you know, just moving around in abject poverty at that time. And they were hungry. And Holy Mother cried about this and prayed about this. She prayed to Ramakrishna that the boys might have a home and that they might have food. And Belomat is credited to that prayer. The reason why there is a Belomat monastery that is now a refuge and a shelter that feeds countless people, not just monks, but also innumerable devotees come there and are fed and the kitchens are always going in a sense you know they feed so many people every day i mean it's not amritsar or anything like that but still a lot of people are fed at the belumat temple and it was probably as many people say directly a consequence of that prayer holy mother interceded but by the way she's the divine mother anyway so by her will which is here phrased as her praying to the master there came to be this belumat monastery which feeds millions and millions of people. But like all of that started perhaps here in Dakshineshwar with Holy Mother deciding to give Baburam five or six more chapatis than Ramakrishna thought it was fair to give. <laughs> is that so beautiful? Then the first thing we have to understand about Holy Mother as a guru is that she really fed people. You know, she really fed people. It's not that she just fed them spiritually. She fed them chapatis. <laughs> There's a, there's a wonderful scene. I forget whether it was Yogin or Baburam, but one of the boys was sitting in, I think it was Latu actually, Adbhutanandaji. He was sitting and meditating and Ramakrishna was walking by. And Ramakrishna said, hey, don't you know the one on whom you're meditating is now inside making chapatis? He's referring to the Holy Mother. Go and help her. <laughs> so this Holy Mother, this Divine Mother of the Universe, she fed people literally also. She gave them chapatis. She gave them a building which they could call their home, Belramat, you know? Um, there was a time when Swamiji tried to sell Belramat. That's a whole other story. But basically, long story short, fascinating story short, he tried to sell Belramat because he wanted to get money to save people from famine. There was a famine or some kind of, I think a plague at that time. And so they didn't have the money for a relief project. Swamiji in his you know, karma yoga mood, seeing God everywhere, couldn't stand that there were people who were sick and who were hungry. So he wanted to 
organizes relief project and him and his brother monks were about to do it but the only way they could get the funds for it was by selling Belomont which he was prepared to do you know all that he had acquired in the west through his base literally like life-ending lecturing his back literally almost literally back-breaking lecturing all of that he was happy to give up overnight just so he could do one relief mission holy mother forbade him holy mother said she gave him like a series of arguments she said one it's not yours to, to sell what, you think this, this monastery is yours? It belongs to the master. It's not yours to sell. And two, what, you think this is just one mission? Like, Belomont is here for just one relief mission? No, it's here for many, many more of these. And the third argument was perhaps the most touching. She said, my child, you and your brothers can live under trees. You don't need this place. But the ones who are coming after you do. You know, is that so profound? Like, you, you don't need this place, but we do. So it's not yours to sell, she said. I think that's an important point that Holy Mother Sarada Devi decided that these boys should have a home, that they should have food, um, they should have safety, and all on like a worldly plane also. So it 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 it's like the 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 idea of dharma, artha, kama, moksha, sampatim, dehi, devi, namusti. Like ma is the giver of dharma, artha, kama, and moksha, all the goals of life, pleasure, um, wealth dharma, religion, all of that. It's not just moksha. It's not just spiritual liberation that prakriti gives. Remember, in the Sankhya system, prakriti ultimately gives apavarga, spiritual liberation, no doubt. But she also gives bhoga. It's bhoga and apavarga. So it's not just moksha. It's also literally bhoga. By the way, bhog is literally a word for food. Bhoga doesn't just mean enjoyment. Bhoga, it's, its most literal connotation, I think, is the food, the literal food that you eat. And to me, oh my God, like what could be a higher spiritual calling than to feed people, like literally feed them food, right? And it's quite another thing, I think, when a holy person feeds you food. It's, it's not just that food, but it's still that also that food. So I think this is important. Holy mother as a guru really fed people, literally. Okay, so now the first instance of Holy Mother, though, as a guru, might have been in connection to Swami Trigunatita Nandaji. Swami Trigunatita Nandaji was perhaps her first disciple. It's not quite clear, but what happened was Trigunatita Nandaji went to Ramakrishna and asked for initiation. And Ramakrishna actually sent him to Holy Mother for initiation, saying something like Radha is far more powerful than Krishna. Remember, Sri Ramakrishna is a shakta. So such statements like this are, of course, to be expected. But I find it kind of interesting that today we don't, I think, take these statements more seriously. What Ramakrishna was, Sarada was more. By his own admission, he said to Trigunatita Nandaji in this scene, apparently, that Radha is greater than Krishna, so you go to her for initiation. Holy Mother was, I think, kind of taken back aback by this. She didn't, I don't think she really wanted to initiate anybody, and she was feeling kind of, at least outwardly, apparently, not to comfortable with this idea of taking disciples or giving mantra diksha it's a huge thing to give mantra diksha it's, it's no joke actually it's no joke like you're really you're taking on that person's karma you're um it's it's it's, it's a big thing and and i don't think sarada devi expressed that she maybe she didn't feel like i mean there's ramakrishna you know go and get diksha from ramakrishna i i can't imagine why she would have been hesitant but in the leela she was hesitant and so not it's not quite clear whether or not she initiated him right? But she, I think she probably did. So I'm just going to say, just, I don't know if it's true or not. I think Triguna, Triguna Tita Nandaji might've been her first disciple, perhaps. In any case though, Ramakrishna Paramahansa Dev 
clearly did train her in the context of a guru-student disciple relationship to be his successor because he would teach her bij mantras that he himself had been practicing and perfecting. So he would awaken bij mantras and he would give those bij mantras to Sarada Devi. And he told her she needed those bij mantras because soon she would have to initiate many people. And she would need those bij mantras as kind of like a storehouse to be able to give it to them. This to me is so beautiful because she is the power of those bijas. <laughs> You see, there's another story where Ashesha Nandaji, who was a disciple of the Holy Mother, who was very famous in Portland. He basically established the Portland Center and the Portland Mission. So Katyayani Das, you know, this is the Portland, um, Seattle, kind of Pacific Northwest heritage here. So he came to the West, Ashesha Nandaji, and he was a disciple of the Holy Mother. And there's an episode where he goes to, I think, Sarada Nandaji, falls to Sarada Nandaji's feet, does the Shastanga Pranam. And, and you know, I think he even says, can you reinitiate me? Because he said, by his own admission, the Holy Mother mantra, I don't feel like it's doing anything. It's just Holy Mother, right? Like, it's not powerful enough. It's not Ramakrishna, it's Holy Mother. But you are Sarada Nanda. You are Ramakrishna's direct disciple. So if you initiate me, it'll be like Ramakrishna's initiating me. So Asheshananda tried to get reinitiated because he wasn't happy with the mantra that he got from Holy Mother. He wasn't happy with his first mantra. Oh my God. Can you imagine? I actually know people like this. They take their mantra. In a week, they're like, ah, it's not working. I don't know. Maybe I should go mantra shopping now. Maybe I should go look for another mantra. Baba, you chanted somewhere and see. You know, what you chanted 20 minutes in the morning, 20 minutes in the evening, you think now you're going to be liberated. Baba, you have to chant it 20 hours a day, actually, if you want to really feel the mantra. But I mean, depending. Some people, they chant it one time also, they go into samadhi like that. But so anyway, Asheshanandaji wanted a new mantra and Saradananda took him to task for it and said, you've received literally the highest thing you could receive in spiritual life. Now, I don't think he said it there, but my feeling is that the reason why is because there's nothing high in spiritual life in the tantric tradition, there's nothing higher than a mantra. Once you receive a mantra, that mantra is in seed form, the total potentiality of spirituality. It's, 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 it's hard to justify. It's not a reasonable thing. It's a, a lot of tantra is mysticism, right? So it's a mystical truth that the mantra is a bija, it's a seed. And once you receive a mantra, you've received the highest wealth in the, the tantra yoga tradition. So, but the mantra, the reason why it's so powerful is because it has this bija. The bija that's actually the Shakti of the mantra. And that Bija, uh, no, it always works. Uh, okay, wait, wait, wait. I'll qualify that. Um, the mantra must be alive. Right? This is the Tantric tradition says, without mantra virya, it, doesn't, it won't work. So Diksha only works if the person giving Diksha is an awakened being. The Tantras will say they, they have to be, they have to have attained the fruit of the mantra to be able to give the mantra. Okay, we got Otherwise, um, the tantric tradition says the mantra must be really powerful. Ideally, it's both. Ideally, it's a teacher who is fully awakened, who is giving a mantra that is fully awakened. That that teacher, she might have received it from her teacher. And that teacher might have received it from her teacher, like that. So that mantra, um, it can be awakened if the lineage holder was awakened. But it does, I think, over time, if people in that lineage are not becoming awakened, it doesn't lose its power. But yeah, anyway, so there's a whole discussion to be had about that. It's a whole beautiful, like, mystical literature around diksha and mantra diksha. But the point I want to make here is what makes the mantra powerful in the tantric tradition is that bij mantra. That bij mantra is like the shakti of the mantra. And mantras can be men, mantras, they can be vidyas. You know, there are mantras that are male and mantras that are female. Mantras are seen as deities in and of themselves, actually. In the tantric understanding, a mantra is like an angel, like your higher guardian angel in the, you know, Christian mystical sense. It's like, it's like a deity that's been particularly assigned to you 
to purify you. Mananatrayate iti mantra. It's the protector of the mind. But the power of that mantra, whether it be a male mantra or a female mantra, the power of that mantra is the beach. But the power of that beach is Shakti. So Shakti in her most exalted aspect is mantra. And mantra in its most exalted aspect is beach. Right? So I think it's kind of ironic because Asheshanandaji got his mantra from the power of all mantras, the source of all bijas, Holy Mother herself. And yet, this great master was disappointed. I think that's a huge teaching that some of us, after mantra diksha, maybe we feel like we didn't get anything. Be careful, a very, very loud sound can be barely audible. A very, very powerful thing can be barely perceptible, you know, because we might not have the ears to hear or the sensitivity to feel. So this mantra, um, Asheshananda was not satisfied. Sarananda said, no, no, no. <laughs> the highest thing you could have received. Don't worry. So um, that's something about mantra diksha too. What she gave Triguna Titanandaji was a mantra. And by giving him a mantra, she initiated him into the lineage. So Triguna, Triguna Titanandaji might have been Holy Mother's first disciple. And what that means is um, there's a lineage with Holy Mother as kind of the founder of that lineage. Arguably, it's the Ramakrishna lineage. It's through Ramakrishna that Holy Mother got these bijas. And through these bijas, she gave it to Trigunati Tanandaji and, and many others, right? And that continues to flow now. But I think a more radically Shakta reading is that Ramakrishna had these mantras, which were, were empowered by Holy Mother. So Holy Mother is the power of mantras. Imagine what it is to receive a mantra from the one who powers mantras. That's the point I wanted to make. Now, it's true that Yogin, later Swami Yogananda, was not initiated by Ramakrishna. This is a fact. Yogananda... Um, I don't mean Paramahansa Yogananda Giri, I mean Yogananda Puri of the Ramakrishna Vivekananda Lynch. Yogananda was not um, actually initiated by Ramakrishna, though he spent many, many days with Ramakrishna in Dakshineshwar. Ramakrishna never actually got around to initiating him. So it is a fact that Holy Mother did initiate Yogin Maharaj. You know, so some people say Yogin Maharaj might have been like the first disciple or something like that. But we know that beyond just these, she initiated countless others countless others. And one person she initiated, which is quite important for us in the West, is Swami Nikilanandaji. Because Swami Nikilanandaji wrote the translation of the gospel that most of us are familiar with. So those of us who are reading the gospel of Sri Ramakrishna, we're probably reading it because of Swami Nikilanandaji. His translation is kind of the standard translation that most people in America and in the UK and I think all over the world are reading. And so he was the disciple of the Holy Mother. So see what power the Holy Mother has and, and how it produced the Nikilanandaji, you know. And Nikilananda wrote autobiographies. No, not, sorry, not autobiographies. He wrote biographies on Swamiji and on Holy Mother. All are really, really great biographies. But you know who else was Nikilananda's disciple? Meaning who was in the lineage of Holy Mother? After Nikilanandaji, Joseph Campbell. One Joseph Campbell was initiated by that Nikilanandaji in New York. So many of us have heard that name, Joseph Campbell. It's very important. He inspired George Lucas in many ways in, in coming up with the whole Star Wars world, you know? So it's no surprise that there are so many parallel concepts between Star Wars and like the stuff that we're talking about because no doubt, Joseph Campbell was a huge influence in that thinking and that understanding. And Joseph Campbell, his theories about myth are Ramakrishnite at, at their core because they're about like unifying what seemed to be a duality or, or, or a plurality to show that there's one common core to it all. That's a very, you know, oneness of all existence, the innate divinity of the soul. It's a very kind of Ramakrishnite, Vivekananda kind of vibe. So anyway, just to say that Holy Mother did give mantra diksha 
Um, and when Ramakrishna passed away, she really started giving mantra diksha, like hardcore started giving mantra diksha. So as a guru, um, she was tireless. She would give mantra diksha to anybody and everybody. It's like she said, if they just said mother, she couldn't resist them. And that's beautiful. She was she was very, very not selective. And there are, of course, these wonderful stories. And I'll, I'll wrap up shortly. I always say that, but I mean it this time, I hope. There, there's this wonderful story of, um, you know, these people coming to Brahmananda, Raja Maharaj, who was then the president at Belomat, who was alone authorized, I think, at that time to give diksha, or who's, who's one of the few people giving dikshas. I, you know, I think, wait, let me tell you another story. This is, this is actually a beautiful story. Ji himself didn't want to give mantras. He didn't want to initiate anybody until I think he went and watched a play of Ramanuja. And there's a beautiful play where in the in one scene, Ramanuja gets a mantra from his teacher and the teacher forbids him from revealing the mantra to anybody. And so Ramanuja says, well, what will happen? The teacher says, if anybody hears his mantra, they will immediately be liberated. But if you reveal it to anybody, you will go to hell. And so the first thing that Ramanuja does is he goes to the nearest temple, goes up to the spire and shouts, starts shouting the mantra, calling everyone to come and shouting the mantra. His guru comes and takes him to task. I gave you a mantra. I told you not to chant it aloud. Hey, you people who have received mantras, don't be careful. <laughs> I'm not telling you to go and chant your mantras aloud because your mantras are not like that mantra. Okay, don't, don't, don't go and chant your mantras everywhere. But unless, I don't know, I did, don't. But uh, Ramananda, he went and watched this play. What happened to Ramanuja is... He went um, to the spy, started chanting the mantra, and the guru said, what, you're going to go to hell? Why did you reveal the mantras? And Ramanuja said, Gurudev, you told me that if anybody but so much as hears his mantra or chants his mantra, um, they will immediately be liberated. If I go to hell so that all of these people can be liberated, I will consider my life a life well lived. And at that point, the guru who gave him the mantra falls to his feet and becomes his disciple. You know, so that's a beautiful thing. And when Brahmanandaji saw that, then he started initiating people. Because <laughs> you give a lot up. When you give someone diksha, don't, don't play with this kind of thing. It's, it's real. Um, when you give diksha, your huge amount of your sadhana, spiritual practice goes into that. And there's a commitment. Once you give diksha, you have to really generate power. It's, part, like, it's a whole thing. And, and, and it's, it's, it's Brahmananda, it's, it's to his test, to, what a powerful personage that he is, how reticent he was with the diksha. I think it's a kind of interesting thing. And Rishabh, yeah, I think a lot of the Vaishnavas had this idea, uh, Madhava especially, of like hell and things like that. So anyway, that's what I think inspired Brahmananda to do it. So Ma, Ma Sarada and Brahmananda ji were giving diksha. And of course, Vigyanananda also was giving dikshas like that. Um, oh, there's a wonderful story. I have to. Vigyananda sitting under a tree was giving dikshas into Ramakrishna mantras when one day Ramakrishna appears and Ramakrishna is sitting there. Vigyanananda always had these visions. He was a very visionary kind of Swami. And he saw Ramakrishna sitting there and Ramakrishna says, you only talk about me, you never talk about her. And after that vision, he started giving Holy Mother mantras also. And he started being obsessed with Holy Mother. He started talking only about Holy Mother. And he actually put out a translation of the Devi Gita, Devi Bhagavatam. It's by Swami Vigyananandaji, but it's so nondescript that people don't even understand that it's our, like, Ramakrishna Vigyananda. You know, because he was, he was kind of a recluse. You know, the Swami with the glasses. He was kind of a recluse. He was a visionary. And he wrote this Devi Gita. And my feeling is that it's about Holy Mother. The Devi Gita is one of the most important um, devotional pieces of literature attributed to 
Kali or to, to Durga or to the Divine Mother. But it was, I think, only after this vision. I, I may be wrong, but I think it was after this vision where Ramakrishna inspires him to contemplate upon the Divine Mother and talk about the Divine Mother that that book came out. It's on my shelf and it's too far for me to show you, but it's beautiful. It's, it's my, if you want to read the Devi Gita, my recommendation is that. Beautiful book. It's all just English, just the English translation, Vigyananda's own translation of the Sanskrit masterpiece, the Devi Bhagavatam. Okay, okay. Anyway, so isn't that cool that Vigyananda had this vision of Ramakrishna? Ramakrishna told him to give Holy Mother mantras. Anyway, so back to Brahmananda. So it's not just Brahmananda, obviously other Swamis, Shivananda later after Brahmananda would initiate. But at this point, it was mainly Brahmananda and Holy Mother. And this too, after much reticence on both their parts, parts right? So Brahmananda was initiating. Um, and as much as he was initiating, he was also a bit selective. So these boys had come to him and he refused to initiate them. Because he had a spiritual vision. He knew what they were. And he's like, I, I can't, I can't, I can't digest that karma. I can't do it. And so the boys were begging, begging, begging. So you know what he did? He sent them to Holy Mother. And Holy Mother at that night, apparently earlier before they arrived, she was like pacing back and forth. And she was like, you know, like I think agitated or something. And the boys showed up and she's like, you see what kind of a gift that the mother, what kind of a gift to send your mother? But she initiated them. I think she had first refused and then did something like that because they pleaded and pleaded and pleaded. So she did it. She initiated them. And when Premananda later came to find out that Holy Mother had initiated these people, just because they all, I mean, they're on a different plane. They understand the energetic cost of these things. When Holy Mother came to understand, I'm sorry, when Premananda came to understand this about Holy Mother, um, I think he did something like, say, the poison that we cannot digest, she has effortlessly digested. You know, the poison that we cannot deal with, she has, she has dealt with. What a thought, right? I think of Shiva drinking the poison in the, how she was able to digest so much and she would get ill. One time, you know, she would get, hor by the way, after she initiated to these people, she got horrifically ill, right? But that's just kind of this beautiful, like Christ bhava you see with her, where she would initiate anybody and everybody, no matter what their karmas were. She was always ready to digest anything and everything. And she's the one that devours time and space itself. She alone can do this. She can digest this. You know, ordinary gurus, you know, like what, how do you compare to this one who can, any karma she can digest like that. Okay, so that's one thing I want to stress. And I'm coming to the end now that one of her main functions in the Ramakrishna mission, I think is this. She is the beach of the mantras. And beyond that, she was the giver of the mantras for many, many, many people, innumerable people after the master's death. The master was selective. He gave mantras to only a few people. There would be no mission, I think if not for Holy Mother, really broadcasting mantras, not on a microphone, but privately. Your people would visit her. She would tell them to go bathe in the Ganga. And then she would do a very simple ritual and initiate them then and there. No, isn't it beautiful? This Holy Mother, how she would give mantras and she would give them to anyone and everyone. Now, anyway, she was so industrious. She was so hardworking in giving these mantras that someone once pointed out like, you know, you're working too hard or something like that. And you know what she said? I, this tallies a bit with my point that I was making earlier about how much she loved her job or how inspired she was about this mission. You know, she said, did the master come just to eat rasagula? Rasagula is that sweet meat. It's like an Indian sweet. It's like a rice ball soaked in syrup. And the master was fond of these. He would often use rasagula as a metaphor. You know, this whole world is rosh, soaked in consciousness. Like, you know, to imply the rasagula soaked in syrup. Chidanandaghana, like that. And so this Holy Mother, she made this point, you know, did the Rama, did the master just come to eat Rasagula? No, there's a mission, you know? There, there's this beautiful scene in the Lord of the Rings, and, you know, this is our obligatory Lord of the Rings reference. In the third movie, 
Frodo and Sam are in Mordor, right? And they accidentally get mistaken for orcs. And they get drawn into it. And this is only in the director's cut, sorry. It's an extended edition, which, you know, if you're a true fan, you would exclusively watch. Anyway, so they, they get mistaken for orcs and Frodo and Sam are brought into the orc camp. Isn't this such a cool scene? These two hobbits are like in this orc camp and then there's this orc general or bosun or something like that. I don't know if it's still called a bosun if they're not on a ship. But then he goes, move it, you slugs, or something like that. Like some orc kind of thing. He goes, don't you know we're at war? I was like so taken by that, you know? Like get to work. Don't you know we're at, you know, like that's the idea. Like Ramakrishna came home. Oh my God, we're in the apostolic age, right? Like what was the first 300 years like after Christ? There's work to be done for future generations to enjoy the meal. We have to lay the table. That's the idea. When Holy Mother says, did Ramakrishna come to eat rasagula? <gasps> God forbid I rest. <gasps> Why should we? We're, we're doing this work. And, Ram, and Mother really, you know, she said, Ramakrishna came. So I'm doing this work, you know. <laughs> It's so beautiful. And you know what she said to some people? She said, and this is a direct quote, one who gets blessings from me. Remember, she was very shy. She was very indrawn. But she said this, one who gets blessings from me need not worry about final liberation. And this is from Swami Pavitranandaji's beautiful book, The Holy Mother of Short Life. You know? So she said this, one who gets blessings from me need not worry about final liberation. And that's true. You know, my, my guru once said about Kali, liberation is a trifle from her. For, for her. Once you get her blessing, there's nothing that can happen to you. Rani Rasmani said, if something, if she cannot protect me, nobody can, you know. But if she's protecting you, what to say of liberation? It's easy. So she said this, Holy Mother herself said this, if one gets blessings from me, they need not to worry about family. And, and Amrita, to your question, here's the, here's the answer. If you meditate on me and remember me, that will be enough. I and my master are one. Direct quote. Right? So here it is, Amrita Devi. A direct quote from Holy Mother herself, um, making a, a sorry, my, I know my camera went off. I'll come back in a moment. I hope. Excuse me. Excuse me. Okay. Uh, uh no, it's not. That's the wrong camera. Excuse me. Hello. You're doing such a good job, camera. I know. I know. It's like the Grammy music. I'm. I'm trying to finish my speeches more on time, and it, this is. I think the lights are dimming. And or, or the lights are coming on rather and the music, the Grammy music is coming on. They're like, just finish the talk already. Oh my God, it's 10 minutes past the hour. I'm getting there. I'm getting there. I just want to say this, that she herself by her own admission said, if you meditate on me and remember me, that will be enough. I and the master are one. This is so much like the Christ saying, I and my father are one. You know, you have seen the father for you have seen me, that kind of vibe. Oh my God. You know, to have seen the Holy Mother is to have seen Ramakrishna. She said, if you meditate on me and remember me, that will be enough. Beautiful. Yeah. Um, do you have time for one more point? I just want to... Yeah, I guess what can you do, right? Like, what can you do? I'll make one more point. <laughs> but it's a point about uh, austerity. So Holy Mother, you know, she went on a lot of pilgrimages. She went... Um, to Varanasi, I think twice. She went to Vrindavan. She went all over the place. She, uh, she, she was a she, she was a yatri. She did a lot of yatras, pilgrimages. So, you know, um, once she was in the Radha Kanta temple. If this talk doesn't last, <laughs> right? Exactly. <laughs> I have to give you all your entrance fee back 
if it's not a 90 minute talk no i'm really you guys like i'm really trying to make an effort this year to like end the talks when they're supposed to just so people can plan their like lives better around this kind of thing you know just we know it starts this time it ends this time I'm trying so um she was really really fond of austerities you know maybe this is a separate talk but i want to talk about holy mother as a guru and I think we've done that a little bit about her role as a Diksha guru, her role, uh, the direct quotes from her about what to do with, with regards to her guruhood. We've talked a little bit about that, but behind every true guru, I think, is a great sadhaka, a great yogini, you know, I think. Because, see, in the tantras, we say that a guru's function is to live the life. Above all, a guru should be a living representative of God on earth. That means the guru is generosity incarnate. The guru is peace and joy and bliss personified. The guru is wisdom embodied. The guru should be as far as possible, given it's a guru worth any real salt. The guru should be, um, good, thank you. The guru should be um, your closest human representative to God. That's the ideal guru. So you could think the guru's main function is to live the life and thereby inspire you to live it too, right? But deeper than that, the guru's main function arguably is to transmit spirituality, which you cannot do unless you live the life, I think. I mean, no, no. Arguably, you can. Like the energy can flow through vessels that are broken too. It's totally possible. Um, as somebody said, uh, you can still sweep the floor with a dirty broom. It's true. With a dirty broom, you can sweep the floor. With an imperfect vessel, you can get that same shakti. No doubt. That's why there are many imperfect gurus who have definitely produced great disciples. No doubt. Uh, it's true. The shakti is kind of autonomous and self-willed in that sense. So I want to back up a bit and maybe not make as absolute a claim as I was about to make a few moments ago. But I do feel like it's more likely for this transmission to occur, at least in a safe and integrated way, from one who is living it. You know, yes, it can come through anybody. But it's a bit unstable in that sense. We've always said in Tantra that your gurus must walk the talk. It's not enough to talk the talk. They must walk the talk. You must sense in them. And Ramakrishna would say, you must test your teachers like a money lender tests coins. You must be sure about them. Don't be taken in with the glamour and the charisma or anything. You must really see what kind of person they are. And you can't do that on the internet. You, I, I don't think at least. I think you have to like see them and, and move with them and spend enough time with them so you can really come to have an assessment about who they are, not who they're presenting themselves to be. You know? So the guru must live the life. Above all, I think a guru lives holy life, lives spiritual life, and that itself is a great blessing to us because we can see what, what it's like, right? Like what that looks like. That's a great thing. And then of course, the guru transmits. But I think in the tantras, the guru has one extra role too because it's not, you know, somebody who lives the life Somebody who transmits is good. But you know what? Somebody who lives a life, somebody who transmits, and somebody who has actual instruction for you is better. You see, a guru is only a guru because they're teaching. So the student must be taught. And to teach the student, you must, you yourself must know things. You must be a great meditator. How can you teach meditation if you yourself are not a master of meditation? How can you teach puja if you yourself have not achieved some level of proficiency in puja? How can you teach japa if you yourself have only just started counting on a mala? You know, like here's the thing. If you want to teach someone music, the best music teacher is going to be a good musician. So the last thing I want to say, I think, about Holy Mother as a guru is that she gave a lot of bij mantras. She was so, so open to taking anyone and everyone, showing her capacity to digest karmas. She was so um, nourishing, not only providing real physical food, you know what to say, of spiritual nourishment, um, all of that stuff, right? Like all of that's true. But she's also a great yogini. And I think that speaks to her power as a guru. So she would go on these pilgrimages. And when she went to the Radha Kanta temple in Vrindavan, you know, she actually prayed with tears in her eyes to 
for God to remove her fault finding. She didn't want to find fault in others anymore. You know, her ultimate teaching was this. If you want peace, my child, don't find fault with others. Rather, look to your own faults. Consider this whole world your own. No one is a stranger to you. That was her final teaching and perhaps her highest teaching. Deep metaphysical truth is expressed in that teaching. But she had to pray for it. Holy Mother herself, who is the recipient of prayer, herself prayed to quote-unquote God, whose power alone she is. Um, she prayed to God, you know, please take away my fault-finding. You know, I, I want to see the best in others. She prayed in the Radhakanta temple. So a big part of her sadhana is prayer. She prayed for Belomat. She got it. You know, she's a manifester, as I think they would say, in this new age culture. Like, she really manifested, you know, I mean, she, of course, the power of manifestation itself. I, can't, I never get tired of saying that and reminding us of that. But um, she would pray for things. And I think that's a good thing. Like, as a sadhana, she really valued prayer. Pray to the Lord. She once said, um, is spiritual life really anything more than this? Think of him. Pray to him. Think of him, pray to him, meditate on him. Something like that, she said. I'm paraphrasing now. I don't have a direct quote on me for that. But she said, is, it, is spiritual life really anything more than this? Think about God. Pray to God. You know, <laughs> meditate on God. That's really all there is. Um, so yeah, uh, she used to pray. Now, in November 1888, she went to Puri. She went to Jagannath, the temple of Jagannath, which Ramakrishna in his life never visited. This is very beautiful. This next thing is so beautiful. Ramakrishna never went to Puri. Ramakrishna was afraid that if he went to Puri, he would, you know, immediately leave the body because he would immediately remember who he was. Swamiji, very shortly after visiting the Amarnath cave in Kashmir, left the body, probably because he was that guy. <laughs> that guy who was in Amarnath, that was Swamiji. <laughs> and when Swamiji recognized what he was, his body falls off, and it did. So I think Ramakrishna, he was scared to go to Jagannath, because he would probably drop the body you know, coming into the presence of... Anyway, Holy Mother went though. She went to Puri. She went with Yogin Ma, Rakhal, Yogin, um, which would later be Yogananda, Sarath, who would later be Saradhanandaji. Rakhal is, of course, Brahmanandaji. So she went with some of her disciples. And this is so beautiful. She went to Puri in 1888, November 1888. She took a picture of the master and she held it up so the master could see Lord Jagannath. You know, what does this demonstrate? Like, the picture was not just a picture for her. Like, she truly felt the picture was a living representation of the master. And she truly felt like to show the picture to Jagannath would be equivalent to showing to the master seeing Jagannath. Like, just the, 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 just the, the girlish desire of a wife to show her husband something beautiful was manifested here when she took out the picture of Ramakrishna and showed it to Lord Jagannath, which I think is a powerful lesson to us all. That's not just a picture. Right? Your murti is not just a murti. Don't think that way. Holy Mother showed us with her sadhana that prayer works and that images are not just images. You know, never think that. It's a beautiful thing. Okay, then, then she went again, actually, in 1904. So she went to Puri, I think, twice, if not more times. Um, in 1890, she went to Gaya, uh, the place of the the Buddha, Bodhgaya, but also there's where Ramakrishna's father had his vision of Vishnu and all that stuff. So she went to Gaya with Advaita Nandaji. In 1895, she went to Varanasi. She went to Vrindavan again. In 1910, in February, she went on a South India pilgrimage, which I think is really beautiful. She went to the Minakshi temple, I think, and all of that kind of stuff. Um, in 1912, she went on a last pilgrimage to Varanasi. And there she met um, Chameli Puri, who I don't really know very much about. But Pavitranandaji reports that she met a certain sadhu and she was very impressed by him. And in her first trip, she met Bhaskaranandaji, 
also a great well-known sadhu. And she was also very impressed by him. So that's the third thing. The first thing that she demonstrated was the power of prayer. The second thing she demonstrated was the power of the image and why the image is not just an image. The third thing is also, I think she's demonstrating that we should, ought to seek holy people out. We have to go and find them. You know, Ramakrishna, when he went to Varanasi, went to go see Trilanga Swami. And there's that famous exchange that they had where Ramakrishna goes, one or two? And Trilanga Swami goes, is God one or two? And no, God is one. So anyway, when you go to holy places, try to go and visit holy people, you know, and, and this is Sadhu Sangha. And she's demonstrating that even the Holy Mother goes and looks out for Sadhu Sangha. There's a cryptic statement that she makes at Sarnath. So she visited Sarnath where the Buddha gave his first lecture. And there she was looking at the ruins of, I think, Buddhist structures, Buddhist buildings, also Buddhist institutions of learning that were destroyed by the Mongols in that invasion. And there were, I think, tourists from the UK or something, Westerners who were there. And they were like, wow, wow, wow. They were marveling at the ruins of the great Buddhist civilization. I mean, look, this is kind of crazy. Harvard, Balliol College, the oldest institute of learning in the West. I mean, you could consider Plato's Academy and stuff like that. But I mean, you know, just conventionally. The oldest established institute of learning in UK or in the West, Balliol College, was founded the day that Nalanda University was raised to the ground by the Mughal hordes. Isn't that beautiful? Anyway, but that aside, these Westerners were marveling at, you know what she said is so cryptic. Maybe you can tell me in the satsang in a few moments, like what you think this means. She said, ah, oh, isn't this strange? I'm paraphrasing a bit. She says, they're the ones who build it. And yet they are marveling at what they built. What does she mean? I mean, like, uh, is she saying that the great scholars of Cambridge and Oxford now are just the reincarnated Buddhist masters? You know, I, I don't know. Like, it seems something like they are the ones that build it. Now they are marveling at it. Oh, it's a very interesting thing. It could explain probably why Buddhism has been so influential in the West. Maybe a lot of people here actually have that past life. Oh, no. um, it's a very intellectual place, right? Nalanda. Anyway, moving on. Now, this I think is very important. I, I have to close uh, with this. To, yes, okay. So she goes to Nilambar Mukherjee's house and here she performs the ferocious Panchatapa austerity. Panchatapa is where you sit and meditate surrounded by four physical fires and the fifth fire is the sun. And you sit and you meditate surrounded by this ring of fire. What does, what does our um, John Cage, what, oh my God, ring of fire, ring of, what's his name? What's it, uh, John Cage, right? Oh, what's, it, what's, it, what's, the, what's the, the guitar? What? Johnny, Johnny Cash, duh. I knew that. It just wasn't coming for some reason. That was a ring of fire. But like, yeah, so here's our rock and roll reference. What does he know about this ring of fire? Like this ring of fire, like mother sat in the middle of it and she meditated and meditated and meditated and did the Panchatapa austerity to overcome grief, actually. Yeah, I was like, is it John Cage? No, she wouldn't come in. John, John Cash, yes. Ring of fire. Thank you, you guys. Just on it with the pop culture references. No, no, John, not John Wick. <laughs> not John the Revelator. No, Johnny Cash. Who, by the way, covered the Trent Reznor song, the Nine Inch Nails song, right? Isn't that interesting? Like, like I, you would think the other way around would be true, but like, it's like, it's anyway. So, <laughs> right? So anyway, holy mother, Amrita is saying, I knew you were going to say, so ring of fire, exactly, yes. So, <laughs> She, she's there. She's, by the way, she's doing this on stage to overcome her grief for her lost husband, which I think is beautiful to think that great spiritual beings experience grief. 
we have this weird idea about what spiritual freedom looks like. Um, and I think we think that there's no grief, but there is. And Holy Mother herself felt grief and she did an austerity to overcome grief. But is that beautiful? She did an austerity to overcome grief, which shows that Holy Mother herself knew the value of doing things like Purasharanas, doing things like Panchatapa and the effect that they have on our emotional disposition. Grief was heavy. It was tamasic. It's there in her too. And she's not going to sit around and wallow in it. Is that beautiful? She's not just going to sit there and whimper. She went and did an austerity, a fierce austerity to purify and cleanse herself of that, you know, to overcome it in a sense. It's a beautiful thing to me, I think. Anyway, she does it. She succeeds in this panchatapa austerity, which to me is beautiful. It's like even great spiritual personages, and perhaps this is because, this is why they're great. Um, it's because of this that they're great. They do austerities and they really practice. They really, really put in the work. And they put in the hours, literally. So it's a very beautiful thing. Now, at this house, at Nilamba Mukherjee's house, she had a very prophetic and I think beautiful and moving vision. It was a vision of Ramakrishna walking to the Ganga and then dissolving into the Ganga. And then shortly after, Swami Vivekananda treads into the water of the Ganga and around him is gathered a huge group of people. And Swami Vivekananda is sprinkling the sanctified water of the Ganga on all these different people. What a scene. Holy Mother saw this and refused to bathe in the Ganga for many days. I remember this was her habit to bathe in the Ganga. She refused to bathe in the Ganga because it was too pure. She saw Ramakrishna go into it. So, so this speaks to the Ganga, of course, the purity and power of the Ganga, um, which Ramakrishna loved. And Ma was very fond. You know, Hindu temples typically built such that the north or the east is where the deity is. So the deity is southward facing or westward facing. So when you sit, you're facing in the east, you're facing in the north. But if you go to the Holy Mother Temple at Belumat, it's not like that. If you sit, you'll be facing west. So they had Holy Mother face east because that's where the Ganga is. You know, so they, they built the temple to make sure that Holy Mother would have an unobstructed view of the Ganga at all times. You know, oh, we could go on and on and on like this. But importantly, this vision of Sri Ramakrishna and, 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 Ra and Vivekananda sprinkling the water was so real to her. Like she took her vision so seriously because she, she felt like those visions were perhaps realer than real. You know, they were on a different order of reality. So that's another thing we can learn from her. You know, through austerity, you can come to have refined and powerful spiritual experiences and they're real and they are to be taken seriously. And Holy Mother certainly took them seriously. Um, and, and, you know, to close all of this, she... Right? I said that 20 minutes ago, 25 minutes ago. She, he, I really thought I was going to do it today. She heroically returned to um, Jairambati and took up duties with her family. And I'm actually I'm going to put this notebook aside and finish with this. She took up duties with her family. And this is because she had a vision of a young girl crawling behind Holy Mother, Divine Mother Kali or something. And Ramakrishna appeared and pointed to that young girl and said, hold on to her. She'll keep you in the physical plane. There's something mystical going on here because Holy Mother might have left the body in an exalted spiritual mood if she didn't have um, her niece, Radhu, who I think was a really wonderful person because she kept Holy Mother in the body and now to do the mission. But also because she had like real spiritual intuitions, you know, like when she went to the Okay, no, please, Nish, don't go down that line. Like, that's a whole other, the Radhu story is a whole other thing. Like, why do we even need to? So, no, no, no. <laughs> I, I have to, so let's, <laughs> this is a kind of austerity. We keep our mind on the, the goal and like, <laughs> so <laughs> the, the Holy Mother episode kind of concludes with this final chapter of a life where she was really like a family woman. And she was cooking chapatis and raising these young nieces, you know, her brother's 
children, like her her brother's widow's children and stuff like that. So her nieces and one of them, Radhu, was a bit of a handful for her, you know. Um, but this was all necessary because without these people, she would soar. But these people didn't really recognize her for what she was. But from time to time, they would. Remember, she was a huge personality in India. Like she had innumerable disciples at this point and people were revering her as the goddess incarnate. They were doing her worship. And yet, what is that line in the Bible that a prophet is not a prophet amongst his own people or something like that? Like the family could not really recognize what she was. But from time to time, they would, you know? And then they would ask her for money and things like that. They would they would try to like get benefits from her because she was such a like celebrity, a spiritual celebrity that they would try to get like money from her or some kind of material advantage. And she would often humor them. She would give them things. She would give them money. And you know what she said? They all, and this is a direct quote, they always ask for money. Even through mistake, they don't ask for knowledge or devotion. And I want to close with this note. The divine mother of the universe will grant you anything you want. What a shame we ask for money. You know, not that she's not going to give it to you. She feeds you chapatis too. But is that really what life is for? Eating rasagula? You came here to make money. You came here to have a little bit of pleasure. Two days pleasure comes and goes in a moment. Came here for a little bit of fame. You know, really? Is there not something deeper in life? Some deeper, richer way to be in this world? Holy Mother, in this moment, is regretting that we don't ask. As if to say that she's prepared to give. Ask and ye shall receive. Knock and it shall be opened unto ye, right? So she's saying, it's a shame, you know? They only ask for money. Not even by mistake do they ask for the only two things worth having in this life. Knowledge and devotion. I pray to the Holy Mother Sarada Devi, who is ever our Guru, who is the Guru in my Guru, who is the energy and the power of the mantra, which flows in an unbroken stream of transmission throughout the lineage. I pray to that Mother, the mother of the entire universe, by whose power I've become deluded and by whose power I've forgotten my true nature and yet by whose grace I remember it again. I pray to that one by whose grace this act of forgetting and remembering could be enacted. I pray to that playful playmate of the universe, that consort of Ramakrishna, that Shakti of Shiva, that Sarada Devi, who is our guru, and the guru of the entire world, who indeed is the only guru there ever was, ever will be, and is now. May she grant us that which is auspicious. Devyaya tatamidam jagadatma shaktya nishesha devagana shakti samuha murtya tamam bikam akila deva maharshi pujyam bhaktyasma vidhadhatu shubhani sanaha Om Shanti 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 Hari Om Tatsat Om Shri Saradarpanam Astu